Hey everybody, welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast, and my name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my co-podcaster in studio, my fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. Sorry about your Dodgers last week. We haven't touched base since then, uh, but I know you're a big fan going back to the Brooklyn days, so that must have been tough. Yeah, they just got to get back to L.A., and uh, they'll... You know, force right, another game. Oh, you know, that get right back into it. Yeah, uh, and we're usually also joined by our friend and colleague uh, Chris Herring uh, on the line from Chicago, usually. But uh, today he's away reporting a story, so it's just going to be the two of us in studio. Uh, but we'll try to we'll try to make up for it, and, and Chris will be back next week. So on today's show, we're going to be joined by ESPN's Baxter Holmes to talk about tired teams and whether the league can do anything to keep them fresh. We're also going to bring you a small sample on Andre Drummond, who said an improvement at the free throw line might be unlike anything we've ever seen in NBA history. But first, let's talk about a few headlines at the top of the show. We usually cover some news items. The big one that came uh, down the pike today was Eric Bledsoe being traded finally uh, away from the Suns team that he did not want to be on anymore, as he t- <laughs> tweeted a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was worked out that he was dealt to the Milwaukee Bucks for Greg Monroe and some draft picks. Not super impressive draft picks, but uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on this trade uh, in a little bit of a lightning round news reacts, Kyle? Um, well, I mean, so, so the big thing in this is that they keep Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, yeah. The Suns really wanted him. He's the rookie of the year from last season, and he's has like a really big effect on that team where – like they just look more in control. They just aren't rushing things. They, you know, where, everyone knows where they're going, which is really rare for a rookie. He's an old rookie, but uh, still, he's a second-year player now. Well, we said his top Carmelo comp was Steve Nash. He's like a six-foot-six dunking version of Steve Nash, I guess. Yeah, and uh, he's also one of their best shooters. Uh, where he's shooting what forty-two percent from the from three this year, and like no one else is really all that good. Like. Yeah, they they just need a lot of shooters, and uh, he's one of their few. Uh, so no, so being able to hang on to him and not give those minutes uh, back to Delavadova, who's <laughs> who's been having them, uh, that's a big deal. Okay, so the Bucks. Uh, we I think we're this won't be the last that we talk about the Bucks uh, this season. Uh, but another big headline to talk about today, especially in light of LeBron James's recent Instagram post. Referencing an Arthur meme uh, right after Kyrie Irving scored 35 points to lead the Celtics to their ninth straight win are the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, and just the ongoing catastrophe that the start of the season has been for them. Kyle, you are writing a piece about the Cavs uh, right now, right? Uh, So what is going on with the Cavs so far? What what is happening there? So, I mean, it's a bunch of things. The the piece should be up by the time this is uh, this is out. But, I mean, so number one is they traded Kyrie Irving for nothing, for the corpses of Dwayne Wade and uh, Derrick Rose. Uh, They have Isaiah Thomas, of course, on the bench. He will be back at some point in the season uh, from his hip injury. We're not sure what that's going to look like and, like, how much he's going to be able to give them. But from what we're seeing right now, it's going to have to be a lot because they are, I think, 13th in the East right now. And, uh, like... They they've been playing like they belong. They deserve to be thirteenth in the East, right? Last in the league in defensive efficiency so far for a team that was already not known for its defense. This has just been even more of the same badness, right? And so the thing is, 
you can they they seem like a team that it doesn't really care. So it, in a way, you want to be like, okay, so this is just a LeBron team. They're coasting through the year. Right. They've done this before. Right. They were terrible at defense last year. They flipped the switch and everything was fine. Uh, they aren't really rebounding. They're uh, whatever around the middle of the league on a roster that really shouldn't be middle of the league and rebounding. I don't really think that these stats are great, but the movement stats, they are bottom six or seven in how fast and how far they run. Um, and just taken as a whole, it's like you can make the argument that like, okay, clearly this is just a team that doesn't care yet. And They're high in the lethargy index. If we, if such a thing existed, which it should, we should, we should make that, right? Right. Um, but at the same time, there are like also just things that are going to be like much harder to correct for. So the thing that like has driven this team for seasons since LeBron came back, really it drove those Miami teams too. But we have the tools to observe since he got to to uh, to Cleveland again uh, with the the player tracking stuff. Is LeBron when he drives and passes out is uh, one of the most devastating players in the league because one his personal offense he shoots like seventy percent on those uh, over the last several years, uh, but like also that collapses the defense so much and he's surrounded been surrounded by such good shooters that uh, like it's just it powers the entire offense to where other players who are like you know, handling the ball and you know creating their own offense are almost peripheral like they're just there so that LeBron can you know get a blow and like come back in do this thing some more and this season uh, the shooters aren't converting LeBron is creating about the same quality of shots he is making way more of his own personal yeah, shots. Yeah, he himself is having a great year, like one of his best statistical years maybe of his career. Might be his best. His 68 true shooting percentage, career best. Highest assist percentage, uh, which is the percent of like other of your teammates' field goals while you're on the floor. He's taking care of basically everything while he's out there, and he's doing it at an extremely highly efficient rate. And then he's throwing the same passes that he was last year, and just dudes aren't hitting the shots. Is that something that you expect to correct just with more of a sample size as the season goes on? Or is it something endemic to the fact that he's relying on, you know, J.R. Smith does not seem to be the same player. Like you mentioned, Derrick Rose and Dwayne Wade are playing major minutes for this team. So far, Jeff Green, you know, is playing maybe more than you would want Jeff Green to be playing on a team that's a viable contender. Is is this cast of characters around LeBron salvageable uh, or do they have to wait for Isaiah to come back and then just kind of hope that it's not too late that they can just stay afloat until that day like what what is what's the the future for this group for right now I mean so the the real answer is you just got to wait for Isaiah see what you got Um, like they could get Isaiah back for three four five games at the end of the season if he looks right if they're the eighth seed you're not going to have too many problems like not too many problems, that would be but like, yeah. highly entertaining, by the way. Oh, that would <laughs> be amazing. Eight seeds backdoor into the playoffs, and then suddenly look, you know, like the the force of nature that the LeBron teams usually are going into the playoffs. I mean, the the level of petty with that breakup is just so much where you could see. Oh, let's just lose some games, slip back down to seven <laughs> from seven <laughs> yeah. to eight. Right, it's, uh, <laughs> if the Celtics are the one seed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so like that's the big picture. Yeah, we just got to see what's up with Isaiah. Uh, but on the lower levels, yeah, uh, Kevin Love um, in the past. So, like, we have data from Second Spectrum, which is the the provider for all the player tracking stuff. And we can see uh, the average value of a shot that a player takes uh, when someone else passes to him. So uh, last season, uh, Kevin Love, when he got a pass from LeBron, if an average player took that shot, NBA average, 
so given shot distance, uh, shot location, uh, defender. Defender proximity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All these things. Uh, the average NBA player would have made, like, had an effective field goal percent, which, you know, takes into account uh, three is more valuable than two, uh, 54.3. And his actual rate was 59.3. So it's a difference of five uh, effective field goal percentage points, which is a big jump. Um, this season, he's negative 1.4 points on those. Mm-hmm. And so he is. Kevin Love is good at those shots. Uh, it's been his role since he's there, and that's a big drop-off. And the expected value is the same, roughly? Uh, the expected value, yeah. yeah. So it's down uh, about like 0.3%. So not really that much at all. Actually, shit, hold on. So, <laughs> Sorry. Three, two, one. So, yeah, so Kevin Love's actually getting better shots this year. He's uh, got an average expected of 56.3, so about, like, two percentage points up. Uh, overall, LeBron's passes are, like, down about 0.3 points uh, on the expectation, but, you know, nothing that, like, is really going to shift everything. But, but yeah, last season he was, uh, over, the, over the past three seasons, actually, uh, he's been adding about four points per, uh, four effective field goal percentage points to these shots uh, when he's passing to these guys or he's had them added to whatever you want to call it. Uh, and this season it's uh, down like about a point and a half hmm. and not down a point and a half, like negative a point and a half. Right, so right. it's a very big swing. And like that makes up the difference between a team that can coast on offense because they just have a really, really good offense and just kind of, you know, crap the bet on defense and one that's still bad at defense and only like good at offense. And like, no, nah, you can't really carry it like that. Yeah. Um, well, the Cavs will be worth keeping an eye on, I think, all season long. And uh, maybe we could hope for that that eight-seed scenario where they where they sneak in and then we'll see them face the Celtics in the first round. But that's way off in the future. That's way off in the future. And, like, Jay Crowder and J.R. Smith are going to have to make, like, a shot or two for them to, you know, even get At there. At least two. But, so the one player who is just, you know, shooting lights out and, you know, carrying the entire team and, like, just playing with, you know, Verve and whatever is Kyle Korver. So last season, he was a late-season addition, uh, came in, shot like 50% uh, from three once he was a Cav. But that doesn't even tell you how good he was. So last season, uh, the average effective field goal percentage that you would expect from like LeBron passes to Kyle Korver, 51.6. That's actually pretty low, um, you know, all things considered. Uh, his actual effective field goal percentage was 69 that's incredible. So 18 points of effective field goal just added by Korver alone. Just added by Korver. This season, uh, he is, like, getting the second most shots from, uh, you know, LeBron passes. And, like, he's the only reason they've, you know, been in these things because the average affected whatever, is uh, 52.1. And the actual is 77. Oh. He's adding 25, of, not just 25 of field goal percent, effective field goal percent. Like, it is... It's absurd. Kyle Korver, your Cavaliers MVP so far. I mean, you talk to Cavs fans, and they're going to tell you that too. But, but like, they're, yes. yeah, they're going to need uh, when when Kyle Korver is your second best player behind LeBron. That's not exactly what people were envisioning for this team going into the season. So let's leave it there. Uh, I know we're going to be talking about the Cavs probably ad nauseum as the season goes on, and and uh, maybe if they make a shot or two, they could do better than that eight seed in the playoffs. But gosh, could you imagine if they played the Celtics in in a in a series? Looking forward to that one. Oh, God willing. So let's move on and talk to our guest. But first, let's have a word from our sponsor. As football season looms closer to the playoff push, Saturdays and Sundays are heating up, along with the tempers of friends and family. Can you blame them? They haven't seen you in months. Luckily, it's never too late to make it up to them with 1-800-Flowers.com. 
Right now, when you order 12 autumn roses for only $29.99, 1-800-Flowers will give you an extra half dozen roses plus a vase absolutely free. That's up to 40% off the original price. This beautiful arrangement of fall red, orange, and yellow roses will leave them stunned without spending a fortune. It's the best of all worlds. Amazing roses at an unbeatable price. These gorgeous roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. 12 autumn roses for only $29.99 plus another half dozen roses and a vase for free is an unreal deal. But you have to jump on it now. There's 1-800-Flowers.com and then there's everyone else. To order 12 autumn roses for $29.99 plus another half dozen roses and a vase for free, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon and enter the code LAB. L-A-B. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code LAB. All right, now back to the show. With 82 games worth of cross-country flights and back-to-backs, the NBA schedule is maybe the most grueling in sports, and it sets up certain situations where teams can't help but sleepwalk through games. In fact, players and coaches even have names for these unwinnable games. They're called schedule losses. And while the league is trying to cut down on this phenomenon, is it really working? To talk about that and all things schedule-related, we're joined by ESPN NBA writer Baxter Holmes, who's written extensively about how fatigue affects teams' chances of winning. Baxter, welcome to The Lab. Thank you for having me. Uh, I found, as soon as I read your story last week about uh, the, your schedule alert project, which we'll get into in a second, I just couldn't, uh, couldn't resist having you on the show because I think this is so fascinating and such a topic of interest to a lot of people that follow the NBA. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about your schedule alert project and, and kind of the origins of it and, and what goes into it? Sure. So, um, yeah, I've, I've written plenty about the schedule uh, along with some of my colleagues at ESPN and um, after one of those pieces, I was talking to a coach about a particular game that they lost um, against an inferior opponent, and he relayed, he said, we knew we were going to lose that game kind of when the schedule came out. We, it, it came at the end of a long road trip. It was on the tail end of a back-to-back. There was travel across a time zone. It was made even worse by the fact that the, the first game on the back-to-back, um, I think they, they, it went in overtime or it ended really late, and so they got in very late. And uh, I kind of had, you know, he made me aware that coaches around the league have known about these sorts of situations and games um, for years. That's kind of one of the the, uh, byproducts of the NBA's uh, grueling schedule. And um, I went to, you know, my bosses and uh, was like, you know, I think it'd be fun if we could try to target all these games ourselves and identify them for fans and uh, readers so that they could follow along and see the outcomes as they happen, knowing going into games that, uh, you know, maybe their team doesn't have much of a chance to win, not because of who they're playing, but because of the circumstances around it. So we worked with uh, Sherry Ma, uh, who has consulted teams on sleep. She is a researcher out of Stanford and has worked with actually a lot of pro athletes uh, to come up kind of with an algorithm that takes into account certain factors such as uh, travel, if they're going across time zones, um, the pace of games, back-to-backs there's i mean there's all kinds of fact you know tip times there's all kinds of factors that can go into what culminates kind of a schedule loss and when a lot of these factors apply to a certain game that's when you really see some ugly performances so yeah this is our second year of doing it even though the nba improved their uh schedule uh somewhat by taking out four and fives and reducing um the number of back-to-backs i think by 57 total there's still a number of these games we've identified uh, five that have happened so far this year. We've picked all five correctly. There's actually one tonight. 
I'm trying to think. I think it's between the Nets playing in Denver on the second night of a back-to-back, and there's another one, I believe, tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun and interesting to follow along uh, watch these games as they happen. You can really kind of see the effect of toll or the, uh, the toll of fatigue um, in, in real time if you understand the circumstances of the game. Baxter, one thing that the story touched on, um, and I'm not sure how much the, the model got into this, was that like you can go into like how much sleep you need, how much travel you have, but you can't really account for you know the city that you're staying in. And you know, there are cities like New York and L.A. and Atlanta that you know just have reputations of, oh, that team's getting in on a Saturday night, huh? And they don't play until Sunday afternoon. We'll see, you know, how that plays out. So, like, <laughs> how do you go about, like, uh, trying to just put a number on that, put a value on that with something that's, you know, kind of hard to, <laughs> to you know, do that? Well, I, I will say, you know, quickly on that point, uh, that's something we've actually talked about doing um, for next year. It's, it's, uh, there are certain cities where if a guy gets in or a team gets in on Saturday, or they have that Saturday night off in that city and then have to play a Sunday matinee game, you know, it's known to be a really bad situation. Uh, in Miami, you see some teams playing poorly, and it's known as the South Beach Flu. Um, <laughs> if you remember, I believe it was a year or two ago, that the Warriors, uh, they were on pace for the best record ever, and then they played the Lakers, which had the worst, I'm, one of the t- worst records in the NBA, and the Lakers somehow won. It was one of the biggest upsets. And everyone pointed out, well, it was because it was a Sunday game, and the Warriors had Saturday night off in L.A., and then the, there's thus the phrase, Saturday night in L.A. is undefeated. I've covered some of those games <laughs> um, in New York uh, involving uh, even the Knicks um, uh, when back when J.R. Smith was on the team. So, yeah, that's kind of an interesting factor. But if you look at, you know, the, the pace of games for, for um, some of these teams, you know, it might be their third game in four days or their fifth game in seven days. Meanwhile, they may be playing a team that has been off for a few days. I think one of the, the most severe cases uh, last year involved the Portland Trailblazers, which were closing out a five-game, seven-day stretch all on the road, all on the East Coast, and they had to close out a back-to-back. The first game was in Brooklyn, and then they had to go to Cleveland to face the defending champion Cavaliers. And the Cavs were coming off, I think, like four days rest. So just imagine the scenario of, you know, you're exhausted, uh, you're getting in really late, your circadian rhythms are thrown off by all the uh, the travel across time zones, and then you're going against a team that's been off for a few days, sleeping in their own beds, it's well-rested. It's kind of, it's like walking into a buzzsaw. And you could see some of these blowouts. Uh, I don't want to say you can, like, see them happen before they happen, but you can see the ingredients coming together and then you'll see certain, you know, maybe it's a quarter where a team gets outscored like 40 to 18 or something like that. Or, you know, we saw it, um, I think, uh, when the Bucks last game, I think their game against Charlotte, um, it was, it came at the end of a rough stretch. I want to say it was their third game in four days. Giannis came in averaging 33.7 points, leading the NBA in scoring on that end. He ends up with only 14, uh, including five over the final three quarters. And he talks about after the game, it wasn't the defense. It was his legs. It was fatigue. He was even, I think, uh, according to a reporter from the Milwaukee Journal Center, he was airballing shots and missing layups and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's interesting to follow along, but it's also kind of sad because you don't like. I don't think anybody wants to see situations where one team is so kind of behind uh, in terms of a, a competitive, uh, in terms of being competitive. Um, just because of you know the the something as simple as fatigue, but that's that's how it is. You know, it's 82 games, and uh, you know we've we've advocated a lot, or I, I shouldn't say we've advocated, but we've pointed out a lot. Uh, you know, through the voices of experts and 
current and former players about the NBA um, schedule and the notion that um, it should be the reduced maybe to you know 60 games or 66 or something like that. And they made some progress this, with this past schedule and some of the changes that were made, but it still remains at 82. And as long as it remains at 82, we're probably going to still see these kinds of games. So that's always the question. So if we go down to 66 or 50 games or whatever it is, or even if we stay at 82 and just kind of expand out, we've got the extra week this year, and there, there's some talk about you know doing some things along those lines. How much time do you actually need? So we came down to, I think, 11.8 days between uh, as the average between uh, back-to-backs. But how much time do the players actually need um, for it to be like optimal where there isn't like a big competitive imbalance? I think what you ultimately need is to do away with back-to-backs in general. Um, this is the, the kind of the selling point that various sleep doctors who I've spoken with and, and others uh, have made to me is that and I think, you know, Dr. Charles Seisler um, of Harvard uh, makes the point in the, in the piece that we published that uh, even if there's, you know, they, they've reduced the number of back-to-backs to, I think, an average of about 14.4 per team in the NBA right now, that that's still 14.4 too many. Um, and that there's just too many scenarios where um, a team, you know, maybe it's a, it's a home road or a road home, but it requires travel um, on the night of after, late after a game. And they're going to be getting in very late. Uh, and it's just it's just a tough scenario. So I think ultimately you have to find a way to do away with back-to-backs in general. That likely remains reducing the schedule in some form or fashion. But uh, what you potentially would have is a an, you know improved performance from the players. You would also you know there's there's a lot of talk and and the various health experts I've talked to will will cite this until they're blue in the face that you also potentially uh, decrease the risk for injury amongst these guys as well. So that's kind of where I stand on it. I, I mean, if you stayed 82 games, I don't know how much more you can try to expand the season. I mean, we, we start now in mid-October, and then we, you know, the playoffs run to late June. There's not much time off for these guys as it is. Uh, and, you know, the offseason seems to get shorter and shorter. So I don't, I really don't know how much more we can try to push on that end of it. I think they're, they're, as a lot of former players have said, you know, I talked to Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and Dirk Nowitzki have each made this point separately that the NBA needs to take a hard look at reducing games, and here's all the reasons why. Uh, this is kind of the hill that they seem like they're going to die on, and I understand this is where business and money, uh, you know, versus health and science, that's where that kind of the rubber meets the road. And, you know, we know – just kind of anecdotally throughout history where uh, who's kind of won that battle. But that's what we see on a, on, you know, you see throughout the NBA season. Yeah. And, and the other interesting thing there about that 82 games uh, number that Adam Silver himself said, there's nothing special about 82 uh, in terms of uh, other than just that's the way it's always been done. And there's been research that shows that, 82 games is a lot. It's way more comparatively uh, with other sports uh, to tell you, you know, how much it tells you about team quality. 82 games in the NBA is like the same as if NFL teams played 82 games apiece, but they only play 16, and there's reasons for that. Uh, but it always is kind of mind blowing that you know an 82 game schedule is just so much overkill compared with how much you actually need to know who's good and who's bad uh, for the purposes of making the playoffs and and the standings in general. Absolutely. And, and one point I'll make is I think 
um, viewers and fans, oftentimes they'll look and say, oh, well, these guys are getting paid millions of dollars and they fly on charter flights and they stay in the Four Seasons and the Ritz. They should be fine. But the point uh, that is, you know, must be made and, and needs to be understood is that it doesn't really matter um, how they're flying or where they're staying. If they're not able to sleep and recover, period, um, because of the circumstances of the schedule, um, and there's other factors that go into that. Maybe it's a national televised game, and those always run late. Um, or, you know, the, the situation I think that Brooklyn's going to face, I believe, tomorrow against uh, the Nuggets. They're going into Denver on the second of a back-to-back. The Denver's airport is far from downtown, so there's, you know, there's the time change of getting in. There's the long ride from uh, the airport downtown. There's the weather. There's the elevation. You know, that's kind of the nightmare scenario the coaches have described to me as like the worst travel situation you can be in. Um, but yeah, it doesn't matter necessarily what their their travel is like. If you're if you keep a person up uh, for a long period of time and, and you you know, and they're tired from playing the game anyway, where they're physically exerting themselves, then they can't they're not gonna be able to perform at their best. Um I, I look think back to a quote it's always stuck with me from a uh, former uh, longtime head athletic trainer for the Los Angeles Lakers, Gary Vitti, who said to me, um, it's a shame uh, that we'll, we'll never be able to see what these guys can really do. Talking about NBA players, like we'll never see them truly at their best because they're tired all the time uh, because of the schedule. And so keep that in mind when you're watching these guys perform, um, that they, they're performing at a percentage that's less, that's very likely less, uh, you know, maybe it might be a little bit different early in the year. Although as we've seen with some of these schedule alert games we've had already, it, it seems not to be the case, but they're not performing at the level, you know, that they might otherwise be, uh, even if they're playing, you know, fantastic. I mean, it, it's kind of tantalizing to think of how much better they might be in situations where they were able to get optimal, optimal rest. And again, I, to go back to that, I think optimal rest, you know, what, if I was to say, like, what is the one thing we could do to really improve that? I think it's get rid of back-to-back. Um, so, like, that's the that's the trade-off, though. Like, um, you might see players playing a little bit better, but you are then necessarily just going to see uh, fewer games. And like, just be, like we talked a little bit about the business, but I mean, so people understand, like, the the national games aren't going anywhere. The the slate, of, the blocked-out games that are going to be on TNT, ESPN. Uh, those are always going to be there, but a uh, disproportionate amount of revenue comes from regional sports networks, which rely on like the 82 games to be there 82 nights a year. And so taking those out takes a big chunk of programming away from them, right? <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah, no, this is where um, it's tough. It's tough to convince enough people. Uh, and, 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 you know, whether it's even if it's a player like LeBron James who's making this case because of the money element to it. Um, I've heard some make the argument that, well, uh, if you take out the money that a team might make from, let's say, let's say it's Atlanta and the Golden State Warriors only come there once a year, but you're reducing the schedule so he doesn't come there at all that year. Uh, and that's a lot of money that you'd, you'd miss out on, you know, whether it's uh, tickets and uh, parking and concessions and all these other things. Um, well, there's, there is an argument of, that you potentially might make it up on the back end because Steph Curry's career could last longer and you could see him over a longer period of time. And so, you know, you, you versus, uh, uh, you know, having a shorter career because he just kind of worn down from the schedule or whatever the case may be, or he just, you know, whatever that improved health would mean a longer career in the NBA. Um, but it's hard to get, I think it's, 
it's hard to convince someone to necessarily take the long view, right? If you if there's money in front of you, money to be had, there's an inclination to grab that money while you can. And that is kind of one of the notions I think that exists uh, just in business in general. And it's, and it's why it makes it hard to to lay out a an idea that's you know as to why this uh, should and must happen. Um, I don't know what it would ultimately take. Uh, you know, my colleague Brian Winhorst will always, you know, make the case when we're talking about this that the league doesn't care about quality. It cares about quantity. And quantity can be defined in a few different ways. Certainly one of those is money. Certainly one of those is uh, the number of games that these guys are playing in. Um, but it's, you know, I, I would be – there's part of me that even with the, the various amounts of science that's come out and with Adam Silver's comments recently that 82 is not a magic number, there's still part of me that – because of the money involved, they would have a has a hard time seeing that change. Now, I do think at the very least, the fact that you and others are writing about this is sort of a change from the past, right? I mean, I, I feel like when I was growing up and following the NBA, and even as recently as maybe like 10 years ago, this was something that people didn't really talk about that much uh, outside of maybe the coaches and the players knew about these schedule losses, but it wasn't something that as a fan you thought about that much. And now it does seem like it's more in the public eye and more in the conversation uh, with each passing year. And maybe that's even something that uh, I don't know if you've heard anything on this, but do you think maybe the players union might push uh, and make it part of the next CBA negotiation that they do get a reduction in games or, or at least some kind of further relief in terms of uh, the, the schedule and how grueling it is? I haven't heard anything specific as to what might be coming in the next CBA, but um, you know, rest assured that the players association is very, and I've heard this from multiple sources, but they're very interested in trying to take a look at any and all science and statistics um, in relations to player health. And, and and I say that because there's a lot more of that stuff that's available now than it ever has been, right? There's more people that are tracking injuries that are uh, with, with, you know, the various forms of analytics and information gathering and, and bio uh, metrics and all the, I mean, there's so much more that's available and the, and the players association wants all of it. They want to understand everything uh, that's happening to, the players' bodies, and I think that um, you know one of the conclusions. I mean, certainly they could probably come to it just because of comments made from people like LeBron James, who you know means so much to the NBA about uh, the length of the schedule. But uh, yeah, I mean, we certainly are paying attention to it more. We're paying attention to a lot more these days with uh, a lot of the stuff I just mentioned. You know, the the science and analytics uh, that's involved in the NBA. This is kind of it's interesting because. In the NBA for so long, like a lot of pro sports, I think there was this kind of machismo attitude. You know, we got to play through it and tough it out. And, you know, you play tired and, and just you give it your all, your 100% and various other cliches. Um, but we're understanding now at a granular, like cellular level, what these kinds of situations do to you, how they hinder performance and what it's, you know, what you're actually like uh, when you're extremely fatigued when you get into a city at 5 a.m. because of travel delays and you cross the time zone. So, you know, your, your body doesn't really know where it's at or what's going on. Um, and then plus also the impact of blue light from various screens, uh, which is kind of inundating us all along, um, particularly at night and does horrible things to sleep. So, um, yeah, you know, we're understanding this more and more. And I think it, it's, it helps inform our conversations when we talk about, why some of these games happen. You know, I think there's 
there's some nights where, and this has honestly been one of the most interesting things about this project. If you go and look after some of these games, and we've included, I think, some of the some of the quotes in our, our last piece. But if you go and look after some of these games at the at the language that coaches and players use, they dance around the idea of fatigue. Sometimes they say it directly, but they'll, you know, I think Tom Thibodeau of the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves just said something like, you know, we didn't have an edge tonight. Or guys will say, I don't know, we seemed passive. I think it was something that uh, up in Sacramento they said after one of their games. So they kind of use this language to dance around uh, kind of the elephant in the room as to why they, as to a key reason as to why they lost this game. And it's interesting in studying the statistics about certain elements. Maybe they got blown out on fast break points. Uh, maybe they just they, they got killed on the offensive glass or, the, or on the, the boards in general. Or, uh, you know, you could see some, like, you know, weird kind of plays if, if it's Giannis airballing shots. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the circumstances around some of these games, some of these things start to make sense. Okay, well, thank you, Baxter. Let's uh, leave it there, and we'll keep an eye on this. You you write about this at the start of each month, right, uh, and lay out which games in the in the next month are kind of these schedule alert, red alert games. Yes, um, every at the top of each month, we'll announce the games for that month. We will also review uh, the games from the previous month and how uh, those results turned out. With you know, like I said, some quotes and some statistics that people can kind of follow along all throughout the year. Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, for all the listeners out there, you can find Baxter's work at ESPN.com, ESPN the Magazine, and various other ESPN properties. Thanks again. Thanks, Baxter. We'll uh, check back during the rodeo trip. All right. Thank you. Every week, we wrap up the show with a segment we like to call Small Sample, where we discuss an emerging trend that doesn't have a whole lot of data behind it, but might end up being meaningful before the season's end. And this week's Small Sample is brought, once again, by me. Uh, so I wrote a story about the Detroit Pistons that ran on Monday, and part of their unexpected success was the improved play of Andre Drummond, and one very unexpected part of his improved play was at the free throw line. So Drummond, right now, is shooting 75% from the line, making 30 of his first 40 shots to start the season. That might not sound overly impressive. The NBA average is around about 74 75%, except for the fact that Andre Drummond coming into this season in nearly 1,800 free throw attempts had a career free throw percentage of 38%. If it holds, this would be the biggest single season boost from one's previous career free throw percentage in NBA history with a minimum of 1,000 previous career attempts. It would beat out Sean Bradley's improvement uh, in the 2002 season when he shot 92% from the line after having a previous career average of 69%. Uh, And this is just crazy and and unprecedented. The odds of a true 38% shooter making 30 of his first 40 free throws are about 1 in 459,000. So I think it's safe to say that Drummond has improved and is not... Really, a thirty-eight uh, percent free throw shooter, but but what accounts for this? It's it, he's he's trying out a new form at the line, right, Kyle? Right. It's so it's form. It's um, obviously he's working with coaches over the off season, but like it's just confidence too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like one follows from the other, but like you could tell last season or like every season before this that he would go to the line and just really not want to be there. And this season, like the form, like I actually don't think the form looks that different. Yeah, uh, but it's but it's clear it's clearly better, but it's not like all that different. But you can tell like he's just walking up, and it's just 
he just he looks different. Yeah, and he, I mean the routine has certainly changed. I think he's holding the ball a lot further out in front of him, and he doesn't really bring it back over his head as much in kind of the normal way that we're, we were all taught to shoot. He kind of keeps it in front of him and just kind of flicks it at the basket. And normally you would think. That's kind of weird. You know, it's not textbook by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing that I thought was interesting about his change is that uh, our former ESPN colleague, Tom Haberstow, did this super long story about big men shooting free throws and how they're kind of at a disadvantage because they there's a lot of reasons why a shot that's released from a higher point has less of a chance of going in if it hits the rim and also uh, using tracking data he found that the average big man's release point on their free throw was a lot less consistent than than it is for guards and I think that goes into just differences in shooting mechanics for big men versus everyone else anyway that if you're in the NBA as a as a guard or a wing you're in there with large reason because of your shooting and your shooting is going to be on point or you're not going to make the NBA. As you approach that seven-foot mark, though, uh, as a big man, you're less and less in the NBA for your shooting, and you're in it for a lot of other reasons that aren't correlated necessarily with your shooting, and I think that explains why there was such an inconsistency in in the point at which uh, big men were releasing their free throws. And so when it comes to Drummond, my theory there is that his sort of simplified, weird shooting form, uh, it might actually look less conventional, but it has a lot fewer moving parts in it. And maybe that alone is is maybe a lesson for other struggling big men with their free throws that, you know, if you just reduce that variance around your release point and then just practice that a lot, you, you might not become a great free throw shooter. And he's probably not going to shoot 75% all season long. Boy, would that be hmm. ridiculous if he did. But maybe that's the secret to making some kind of incremental improvement, and it's probably easier to improve from 38% to, say, 60% than it is you know, the equivalent boost if you started out at, say, 60% or, or some such. Yeah, and it's just incredible also that there's such a big change for like Andre's entire game with this thing, too, Right, where... A lot of the belly aching last season was because he would get yanked in crunch time because you just can't have Andre out there. And if you can't have Andre out there for like even it's even worse than like the DeAndre Jordan thing ever was. Yeah. And so like now like there's just a lot more harmony out there. And, you know, your best or second best or what's supposed to be your best or second best player isn't, you know, in a foul mood all the time. And no pun intended. His uh his defense uh, on off still is uh is pretty uh bad. That's a that's a large sample size. And yeah, it's been like that for a few years. Yeah, but he's definitely contributing more on offense, and that's uh, one of the big reasons why the Pistons have improved so much mm-hmm. this year. We'll see if they keep it up. Okay, so that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, Kyle. Hey, thanks, Neil. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Chris will be back with us next week. We missed him this week. Uh, our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. We also receive production assistance from our intern, Dan Levitt. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're there. We're on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. And you can find us in the Listen tab of your ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.